From the Lake County Wine Grape Commission and the Lake County California Women for Agriculture, I'm Bill Grudy and this is The Vine Line, an in-depth look at issues that winemakers and grape growers face here at home in Lake County and all across California. In this episode, we're going to dive into an area that seems a little far afield, but not really. We're going to take an in-depth look at Clear Lake, a body of water that affects every aspect of agricultural life in this region. And wine grapes are no exception. So let's get going. We're back to the Soparese Theater in Lakeport, California to listen to Greg Juiste, who is an emeritus advisor to the U.S. Cooperative Extension, a presenter at the California Women for Agriculture's annual Ag Venture, that's a VIP ag tour of the county, an avid fisherman, and a guy who spent a lot of time working on lake-related issues. So it's up to the stage, and Greg Juiste. Clear Lake, 44,000 square acres. Huge, biggest natural lake within the confines of California. Natural lake, not a reservoir. Shasta, Mendocino, Sonoma, Folsom, Comanche, those are reservoirs, right? They get flushed out every year, Oroville. Lake County is, a, like Tahoe, Clear Lake is a natural lake. It works differently than a reservoir. It's something to, you have to remember. So I make, I make the connection between Clear Lake and Lake Tahoe, but I, it's the same connection if I tried to compare it to Lake Mendocino, Lake Sonoma, Lake Berryessa, Lake Shasta, Lake Comanche, Lake Folsom. They're different. That water is coming and going all the time. So what do we know about Clear Lake? We know that it's very old. Depending on who you talk to and who you read, it's 1.8 to 3 million years old. That puts us right at the beginning of the Pleistocene. 3 million years ago, people weren't people. All right, we were still knuckle-draggers 3 million years ago. And that's how, I mean, just to give you a time of reference, how long this lake has been here. It's sloshed around. It's not in the same place that it's always been. But when we talk about something that's 1.8 to 2 million years old, people were not, people, hum, Homo sapiens were not on this planet yet. We were evolving to that, but we weren't here yet. That's how old some of these, some of these systems are. And it's something to, I think it's important to put it in that kind of context. It's shallow. It's big, but on average, if somebody says, Greg, what's the average depth of Clear Lake? It's about 18 feet. Yeah, there's places that are 50 feet deep. There's places that are 20 feet deep. But if you take an average, right out here, uh, right outside of Lakeport from here all the way up to Rodman Slough, it's about 10 feet out for about a mile. It's a very shallow lake. That's important when we talk about light and where, how far light can penetrate the water. People have been a part of Clear Lake for a long time. Some, there's a few archaeological studies down by Anderson Marsh that puts people here at about 10,000 years ago. They might have been nomads moving through, but certainly by 8,000 years ago, people were established here in Lake County, and they were here because of Clear Lake, because of the resources. And so Clear Lake has always been a draw for people, and you know, many, many, of their aunts, many of their descendants are still part of our community. Um, and, and as with all natural resources in California, the 19th century was pretty rough on California because of mining and exploitation of resources, and we're dealing with some of those legacy issues around the lake. So these ancient relationships of, pu of pulling people in because of, of natural resources remains today, remains today. The relationships are different. 
the, the, the people are coming here under different circumstances, but there's still a draw for, because of the resources uh, of the lake and, and why people like to utilize the lake. Remember back in the eighth grade, you learned about the Coriolis effect, how all the water circulates in a counterclockwise motion in the, in the upper atmosphere? Don't believe me, go home and flush your toilet. Down it goes. So again, the Coriolis effect affects wind and affects water. It affects, it affects movement. And even though it's subtle, we know from past studies that this, this movement of the Coriolis effect affects a type of, of surge in, in Clear Lake, a, a type of, of movement. Um, can't really call it a tide, but certainly there are, there are movements of water that, that go through at a certain measurable rate. So in this study that was done back in 75, it was determined for a water molecule, it takes about 100 days because of the Coriolis effect, because of water, because of the currents going out of the dam, it takes about 100 days for a water molecule to circulate Clear Lake. So water's moving in there, even though you can't really see it, it is something that, that is happening, and it, it's constant because the Earth continues to rotate. Probably what you didn't know, there are about, not, what did I say, there's a total of nine dams affecting flow in and out of Clear Lake. Eight dams, I've got them listed there. They're old, they've been around for a long time. Some of them are county-owned, like Highland Springs and, and Adobe Springs, you know, they're flood control projects that were put in in the 60s. Some of these other ones are, are private dams that were built in the early part of the 20th century, and we have one one dam that's controlled by the Yolo County Agricultural and Flood District that goes out of Cache Creek that was built in 1914. The dam can let out more water than the lake can let out. There's a constriction in Cache Creek called the Grigsby Riffle. Water is held up at the Grigsby Riffle before it gets to the dam. So when the dam's wide open, it's not releasing at capacity because of the constriction in Cache Creek, all right? So even though, like this past year, we had the flooding, the dam's wide open, it just takes a long time for that water to get through because of the, and it's a, it's a rock constriction. Back in the 20s and 30s, people tried to blow it up a couple times, but it's just, it's immovable. And so it is, it is a constriction on how water leaves Clear Lake. An interesting thing about the water going out of Cache Creek is long time ago, Clear Lake used to dump into the Russian River. Hence, that's why we have fish from both the Russian system and the Sacramento system. And I'm talking long, long time ago. Next time you drive to Ukiah and you go past Blue Lakes, and you go up, you know, just as you get past Blue Lakes, you start going up the hill, and you go over the hill and you drop down. Well, if you look to the left, that's a big slide that came down and blocked Clear Lake that used to go out through Blue Lakes. So again, I'm talking way back, right? Um, and at some point, the lake backed up, couldn't go out Blue Lakes anymore, backed up, found an exit at... at um, at Cache Creek and started to flow and connect to the Sacramento system. So the fish fauna, consequently, we have representatives from both watersheds, the Russian and the, and the Sacramento. And I'm talking geologic time, right? Not, not something that happened in the last few years. But it is, it is a, a reality of, of what we know about Clear Lake. We know that as a natural lake, there are lots of living organisms in that lake. We know there are lots of different kinds of green, red, brown, and yellow algaes. You would expect it in a, in a water body that old. Uh, and we know that there are at least four different kinds of blue-green or cyanobacteria that have historically been problematic for people in Clear Lake. 
This is the one in 2013 and 2014, Ligbia, that blew up, just erupted, and drove people out of their homes. I don't know if you remember the last bad episode. Uh, and when I went down to Cash Creek and looked at these mats that were forming, it looked like the cobblestone streets of Rome. That's it. This material was coming up off the bottom, it was drying in the sun, and it was cracking, and it, it looked just like cobblestone. That's how thick it was down at that part of the lake. And when it would get hot enough and one of those cobblestones would break open, it was a gagger. I mean, it was putrefied. And that's when people were leaving their homes down in Clear Lake and Clear Lake Oaks. It was, it was really bad. So we know that some of these that have, these are almost, these two we're going to see almost every summer in the, in the, in the lake. This one is cyclic. This one, Jamie Scott will tell you, her people at, at, at Vector Control, they know this one's always in the background. Well, what caused that organism to blow up in 2013 and 2014? One of the talks I thought I'd always never give, and I think it'd be a fascinating talk, is what do we don't know about Clear Lake? You know, how do we, how do we come up with predictive models so that we can tell, okay, we're lining up again for Ligbia, which is always there. It's out in the lake right now. It's in the background. But what caused it to erupt? Those are the kind of questions we're trying to get, get addressed as we move forward through scientific inquiry. So, again, I point out a few different kinds, but really when you go down the list, again, this soup, this, this organic system that we call Clear Lake has a myriad of different kinds of algaes. Diatoms, you ever heard of diatomaceous earth? Gardeners, you ever heard of diatomaceous earth? Those are, the, those are the skeletons, the fossilized skeletons of diatoms, these other type of little phytoplankton that float around in the lake. Uh, in fact, last summer there was quite a bloom of phytoplanktons in Clear Lake that the water was very cloudy. We would call it stained, and it was a, a diatom bloom. Again, we don't, we don't know why, it, why they were there, why they were that kind of number, but that's why the water wasn't as clear as it's been in recent years. And then there's lots of different kind of plants, different pond weeds and, and uh, important ecological contributors to the system that, um, that are also found throughout the lake. Because it's shallow, remember? It's shallow and light can get to the parts of the lake where plants can grow. We're going to talk a lot about that. We know that California and the West is being fertilized from the sky. We know from a colleague of mine in Riverside, uh, UC Riverside, Edie Allen has been doing work on this for years. We know that nitrogen is falling out of the sky from our industrialized society and is causing changes in soils and different systems. You know, the desert is getting nitrified. It's getting fertilized with nitrogen, so grasses are growing in the desert that never grew there before. I'm going, to show you an, I'm going to show you a graphic in a second here of where we know there's heavy nitrogen deposition uh, occurring in the state. But we also know that it's affecting Clear Lake. Okay, we know this is globally up here. We know that blue-green algae, these cyanobacteria, they have the ability to grab that atmospheric nitrogen and fertilize themselves, feed themselves. So they do best in a nitrogen-poor poor environment because they don't have to compete with things like blue, uh, green algaes and yellow algaes and brown algaes which just absorb nitrogen. So these guys, these little organisms are taking the nitrogen out of the air and in a nitrogen poor system like Clear Lake, they have an advantage because it takes a lot of energy to grab and convert that nitrogen, but they have the ability to do it in, the, in lack of competition with these other organisms. 
What's really interesting is you try and, you know, you try and get rid of try and get rid of variables, if you take our blue-green algae populations that we find in Clear Lake and in laboratory, we add iron to those systems, we can get an increase of about 500% production. Wait until I show you the graph of how much phosphorus and iron is in our soils around there and you'll start being able to piece some of this together. So again, this notion of atmospheric nitrogen fixation is, is an important contributor to what drives this lake and what drives the problems we see in the summer. Oh, and by the way, everybody focuses on the problems of Clear Lake and, and the algae blooms. Let's keep in mind, it's only two months. Ten months of the year, the lake is perfectly fine, right? Maybe two and a half months. Right now, you can go out, you can water ski, you can boat, you can fish, you can swim. For some reason, we focus on the negative, where ten, ten and a half months, we've got a perfectly adorable lake. It's actually cute at times. So here's, a, here's some of Edie Allen's work out of UC Riverside. You look here, here's Lake Tahoe. Oh, Lake Tahoe's having a problem with clarity. Nitrogen deposition from the atmosphere is a contributing factor. The other, the big contributing factor, and we're going to talk more about this, is sediments from roads and development. But you can see out here in the deserts of California, the Central Valley, around Lake Tahoe, you can see that nitrogen is affecting how plants respond to their environment. They're getting fertilized. Not too bad up here, but there is some. And I'm going to show you some data in a minute that Alex Horn measured it here in the, back in the 70s. And, you know, where does it come from? It comes from what we do, right? NOx emissions from cars and just burning things and releasing nitrogen in the atmosphere. It's just a, it's a product of our industrialized society, pure and simple. So again, Alex Horn, back in the 70s, did some work and found some astounding numbers of how much, how much total nitrogen is being supplied from the atmosphere. I mean, that's a pretty significant number of amount of nitrogen that he estimated was being deposited on the lake. Oh, that's like flying a helicopter over the lake, dropping nitrogen pellets. Okay, so there's a, that's a source of this, this energy driver. That's a source of the the food, if you will, for some of these cyanobacteria. Again, uh, blue-greens, they're phytosynthetic. They, they, they photosynthesize like plants, just like anything else, and they, they, they need a higher iron content. Those of you that have wells, you know, your barns are red because of the iron in, in your water. We have a lot of iron in our water, so we have a concentration of nitrogen, we have a concentration of iron, we have a concentration of phosphorus that's feeding these organisms. The other thing, too, light. Water routinely less than a meter. You know, it's, if it's dirty, muddy water, you can't get light to penetrate. Plants don't do so well. Just, just think, I mean, you're, you're growers. You know about that. You need water. You need light. You need nutrients. It's not rocket science. It's just what plants do. This notion here, the, I, a lot of the reason the lower arms of Clear Lake have such chronic problems with these, these cyanobacteria scum is because of wind currents, the Coriolis effect, it's, it's, it's physically being pushed to that part of the lake. So when the lake, like when the Ligbia was blooming, the whole lake was producing Ligbia. But because of the Coriolis effect, because of the currents and wind, because of the rotation of the earth, that material tends to concentrate down there, adding to the problem and, you know, and causing a real problem. It was a mess. The other thing that's important to recognize is if we were talking about 
typical industrial or agricultural um, pollution, blue-green algae wouldn't be doing well. And I've got some pictures to show you. Blue-green algae don't do well in a nitrogen-rich system. So if we were having a lot of agricultural runoff or a lot of industrial runoff laden with nitrogen, we would have the conditions that existed in the 50s and 60s. And I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. So we know that these, these scums that, that come into play in the summertime are being driven by other factors. So here's, here's the example I wanted to show you. So Goldman and Wetzel, back in 1963, you know, did what people do. They come and take a snapshot of Clear Lake, spend a couple years here, and tell us what they found. The problem we've had is we've had all these successive snapshots, and we don't have long-term monitoring to come up with any predictive models, but that's another soapbox. I'll get there when I'm done. Um, so what they found was the water was so turbid, it was so murky because of all of the, you know, poor septic systems, uh, old agricultural practices, lots of road building that occurred. The, the, the water was muddy. It was so turbid, there were no plants growing out there. There were no, there, it was just algae and tules. okay? And so this all is what people remember of Clear Lake back in the 50s and 60s. What happened was, following World War I and, and the, the availability of heavy machinery, surplus heavy machinery, roads were being built, hillsides were being torn up, mining was going on. There was a tremendous amount of material being deposited in the lake. 1927 is considered the watershed year. That's when apparently a lot of sources point to that as, as the year that the wheels fell off. So much mud, so much sediment, because there was so much earth being turned over because the 20th century had come to Lake County, that that's when uh, this period in here is when things got really, really bad. Um, and so again, the results of what we're seeing in the 50s and 60s were really put into play in the 20s and 30s. And again, the literature talks about these scums being, becoming prominent in this time. So again, it, those, the, the 20s and 30s was when things started to, to go south. So what's been happening since then? This is cool data. This is really good stuff. So it's called, this is how you measure light in water. You, it's called a Secchi disk. Angelo Secchi. Hey, a paisan, what can I say? He developed it in 1865. He was, a, he was an Italian priest. He was an astronomer. He's a great guy. I mean, he, it's not like he's a cousin or anything, but I thought he was a good guy. He's, he's the guy. He's, you didn't know this was going to be a dinner show, did you? He's the guy that... He's the guy that actually came out and said, you know, I think the sun's actually a star. He's a brilliant man. He doesn't get a lot of credit, but, but he developed this little white dish. And you take this little white dish, it's called the Secchi disk, and you lower it down, and you lower it down in the water until it disappears. And then you measure the string. How long? It's really high-tech stuff, right? You just measure the string, and you know how it's called a Secchi disk. You know how far light penetrates. And so since 1865... That's how people have been measuring light penetration in water. So today they're about eight inches in size, and you guys are, you, no, the scholarship winners, you guys are going to think I'm silly, but you remember back in, in, the, in the 60s when television programs were 15 minutes? I remember my dad watching Dinah Shore and Perry Como. He loved Perry Como. But it'd be a 15-minute show, and then the show would go off, and you'd get that symbol on the TV. And you go, beep, and it, it kind of looked like the radioactive signal, you know, the yellow thing with the lines. 
Lorenzini remembers. He, but, you know, at a midnight, that would come on. It's like you'd stare, you'd stare at it, beep, nothing else going on. Well, that's kind of what a Secchi disc looks like. It's a white disc with these, these black pieces, these black triangles coming off it, and you lower it down, and you say, oh, I can see it down to three meters, three and a half meters, it disappears. Okay, light penetration at three meters. That's how these... That's how these readings are derived. And you can see, going back to 1969 to 2000, and this is in the upper arm, zero represents, represents the surface of the water. Here's the trend line. Without a doubt, Clear Lake has been consistently getting clearer. These are meters, right? Six, six plus meters, a meter is a yardstick. That's 18 feet. And, the, and this is now 10 years old. Yes, ma'am. The fluctuation? Well, you know, that's, that's an inter The question is, what causes the spikes? I was talking to Angela De Palma yesterday from the water resources here. Just think of this last summer and how much smoke we had. You know, it was just, it was cloudy. And so on, maybe, you know, on some, be, you could have some cloudy periods where you don't get as much plant growth and you can see... You can see farther down, bright sunny days with lots of nutrient loading. You get a lot of plant growth. You can't see as far. So you, it, what you look for in something like this, you're going to get these different variations, but you look for the trend. So here, the trend was you can see down about 9 feet. Here, you can see down about 18 feet. Clear Lake has consistently gotten clearer, and that's because of all of the things the county has done since 1969. It's improved it's improved septic systems, it's got a grading ordinance, it's got a shoreline ordinance, it's, it's reduced in-stream gravel mining. All of those things, cumulatively, are starting to show up. If we look... Yes? Oh, just by the 1977 and 81 where it starts coming up, isn't that in pretty much direct correlation with the sewer projects we did around the lake and other things? That Changed? Wasn't that the time frame? Yeah, I don't, I don't exactly know the time frame, but that, that I've would... been here long enough that I, that's about when the sewer on the, the sewer project went yeah. in all around the one side of the lake and around. So instead of going in the lake, it was going somewhere else. Going somewhere Old else. septic systems were, were cleaned up and, and made functional, or people were plugged into sewer systems. All of those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Very good observation, but you're, you're spot on. But again, even in the lower arm, where we have a lot of problems, the trend has been that the water has consistently been getting clearer. Same thing in the oak's arm. So, you know, the, it takes time, and sometimes, unless you're out there, you may not notice it, but, you know, something that happened 40 years ago now, it, we're seeing dividends. Now, the flip side is, what happens when you have more light in clear water? What grows? Plants, right? So, careful what you wish for. People wanted clear water, we're getting clear water, and it's starting to produce some other challenges. So what do we, what do we know what drives water clarity? Well, things like sediment, uh, phytoplankton, like algae blooms can affect water clarity, uh, water chemistry, cleaning up pollutants, addressing erosion. We know that the pH is increasing slightly in Clear Lake. It's getting, tends to be a little bit more alkaline. Not sure what that means, that could just be a function of age. You know, Pyramid Lake is an alkaline lake as well, and that's a very old lake. So it's just, it's just one of those long-term data sets that is telling us something, but nobody's really identified yet. Maybe it's, maybe it's innocuous. Maybe we don't need to worry about it. And then um, 
And then also, you know, these plant communities, you're not going to get plants growing in water like this. You're going to get plants growing in clear water that are fed with nitrogen, phosphorus, and iron, and the sun can get all the way down to the bottom. And that's what we're seeing today. <clears throat> what do we know? We know that sediments have the ability of carrying phosphorus. We know they have the ability of carrying iron. We, have the know, we know they have the ability of carrying other elements. We know from satellite imagery that during storms we have some areas. This is Rodman's Flu in Middle Creek. Here's uh, Dobie Creek, Kelsey Creek. Here's down in uh, Clear Lake, the Clear Lake Arm. We know that we have some erosion coming in. Um, you're going to get it anyway, but now, you know, with this kind of technology, we can start to focus in on, well, where, maybe where should we spend some time and money to try and address erosion? Uh, we know that phosphorus and iron drive the growth of cyanobacteria. We know that both of these elements are a component of sediments coming in. We know that erosion is a source of both P and iron. And with the recent fires, according to Lake County Water Resources, they got a pretty good tick, uptick in silica this year coming in. Silica is a component of, of a lot of plants, and it was released by the fires. Remember what I said about diatoms uh, needing silica to build their little shells of diatomaceous earth? You know, we may, see, we may see a continued bloom of diatoms. Not that it's going to be a problem, but we may see a reaction from the fires in a way that we hadn't anticipated. But with the ongoing data that's being done, being collected, we're starting to get some insights of what might be going on. Yes, sir. Um, I don't get to be heard much. And just by looking at this um, picture, the one sediment plume on the bottom side, um, I've had a thought that if you've driven from Lower Lake to Lakeport, we have the ever-increasing canyon, and if you drive by, you must realize that that big ditch, that dirt has been going somewhere. And with all the, with all the fires and all the foundation stuff that we've hauled to Quackenbush, it would have been a good spot to put it to stop that erosion. I think that one goes into Thurston Lake. I know the one you're talking about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, but that's what you have to look for. You have to look for potential sources of sedimentation, and I'm going to give you another one here in a minute, but you're thinking, around, you're thinking along the right lines. And then the sediment plume on the top end, you, know, you, can't, you can't dredge the whole lake, but that, that's the source of, you know, that's our major source of our pollution that we put into the lake. That's the inlet. That's all the... That's the part that we need to, you know, that we could do something about. So, what does this satellite imagery tell us? It tells us the loading of phosphorus in our surrounding soils. It doesn't have to come from agriculture. It doesn't have to come from an artificial source. We have these volcanic soils that are naturally laden with phosphorus. The phosphorus is being carried by the sediments. And, you know, it's, here's the color down here. Parts per million, there's a couple of darker spots in here, but it's, it's a ubiquitous component of our soil profile across the landscape. So you don't, have to, you don't have to look far, and you don't have to do any guesswork to know where the phosphorus might be coming from. Um, again, it's, just, it's a reality of where we live. As I said again, I'm just driving this home. How does the phosphorus move from here to here, here to here, it's carried in water during storms. And what's the source? It's always roads, roads, roads. 
Stop and think of it. How many miles of bare, bare cut bank are along Highway 20 around uh, Nice, Lucerne, and the Oaks? How many, how many dirt roads are up in the paper, um, the paper subdivisions above Lucerne and Nice? Clear Lake, the city of Clear Lake, the roads aren't, aren't paved. Here in Lakeport, uh, Campbell Road after a storm, it's just mud coming down there. Again, so, again we can, you can look at, you look for the obvious is what I'm saying, you know. It take, roads are a, are a double-edged sword. I mean, as a forester, I'm always working with landowners trying to keep their roads in place because the primary source of sediment is always going to be roads. And they take money, they take care, and they are a constant problem. But that would be, that's where I put my money. You know, if we were going to try and, and address erosion getting into the lake, let's start with the most obvious. And I know, I know that agriculture gets hit, you know, oh, it's the vineyards. Well, okay, it's the vineyards. The, the, the basin is 240,000 square acres. How many acres of vineyards are in the, in the basin? You know, 4,000, 3,000, 5, pick a number, it doesn't matter. And the thing about a vineyard is you can go to a vineyard and you can walk around the edge in a rainstorm and say, oh, you got a problem here, you better fix that, right? It's identifiable. It's, it's, you're dealing with a landowner and you can pinpoint it and you can fix it. We can't do that with roads because they're everywhere and they are a chronic bleeder. What do we need to know? We need to, you know, we need to prove, we need to... We need to field test. We need to ground truth what I'm saying. It's like, oh, Juicy's blowing smoke. Well, all right, hold my feet to the fire, and let's take the information we know, and let's go out there, and let's, let's look at where we're seeing concentrations of total phosphorus. All right, we're seeing total concentrations of fo total phosphorus along Highway 20 here, down here in the, in the Clear Lake Arm. Not too bad up here. There's a few spots, but you can see the phosphorus is throughout. But again, I think what we're seeing here is the results of wind currents and the Coriolis effect, moving water, concentrating these areas down in the southern part of the lake. This is cool stuff. I mean, my daughter would say, Dad, you're geeking out. I am totally geeking out right now. So, again, you know, I mean, you're, you're growers. You know, you know what plants need. We have different cycles going on out there, but really, Plant growth is the sum of light, water, water clarity, temperature, and nutrients. And so we can't, you know, we may not be able to control everything. The one thing we can control is nutrients. The one thing we can control nutrients through is trying to arrest sediments or, you know, the work that the county has been trying to do for two careers that I know of, reclaim the reclamation area to, to bring back some of the wetlands, to bring back some of the... Um, some of the natural filtration systems in the lake, all of those kinds of things will move us towards trying to absorb the, the elements that are being deposited in the lake, but also trying to prohibit or inhibit so much of these products from getting to the lake. Sounds easy, but, but again, you know, there's proof. Things are, things are happening in a positive way, but it's a process. But again, just because we know some of these drivers doesn't mean we can fix it. And that's, that is just my pet peeve when someone says, well, let's fix the lake. Well, you can't fix something you don't understand. Right? It's, not like, it's not like the carburetor on my mower today pissed me off. I spent two hours working on. You know, you could fix something if it's broken, but Clear Lake isn't necessarily broken. It's simply responding to the conditions that it's facing. 
My, my standard line is, you know, in nature, the, the, concept, the concept of good and bad does not exist. In nature, there are simply consequences. Clear Lake is responding to the consequences that were put in motion in the 20s and 30s. And it's working its way through, and we're trying to keep, keep it on a path, trying to put it on a path that we can reduce the, the noxious uh, and obnoxious components of, uh, of this living system. And remember, we're down to about two and a half months. <clears throat> I, don't I rant? I just get going sometimes. Grudy, I'm moving over here. Let's just talk about fish for a little bit. <laughs> everybody, you know, everybody thinks about Clear Lake, thinks about fish. Well, we don't think much about the native fish in Clear Lake. And here's a list of the fish that were here prior to European settlement. You're thinking, oh, <coughs> I never heard of any of these. Well, I don't blame you. Uh, let's see. All of these, which you've, probably, you've heard of the hitch, and maybe you've heard of the blackfish. This used to be called a <coughs> squawfish. <coughs> split tail. All of these, this family, they're minnows. Now, some of these minnows are this big, but they're, they're, the Cyprinidae, or the minnow family, is a very prolific native assemblage of, of fish in Clear Lake. And all of these little guys, these guys used to migrate before the dam in 1914. Uh, Pacific lamprey and rainbow trout or steelhead, these would come up through Cache Creek. The dam blocked them from coming up. Um, Sacramento suckers, they, they're in the lake. Uh, prickly sculpins in the lake. Tule perches in the lake. Sacramento perch, I have, I have all the records of the commercial fishermen. Um, some of you know the Renfro boys and, and uh, the uh, Barthoffs that fish commercially on this lake. They kept really good records. And we have good, good records of Sacramento perch, they call them rock bass, um, around Reeves Point, but I don't know how well they're doing in the lake anymore. Sticklebacks are still around. So, you know, some of these are around thick tail chub and clear lake split tail. They're, they're both uh, extirpated from the lake. Now, we start thinking about all the fish that are introduced, and these are probably the fish you recognize. These are the commercially valuable fish, the recreational value fish, and this is the years they were, they were transported here. There's this really cool guy, Livingston Stone. He worked for the California Fish Commission in the 1880s and, and thereabouts. He would pack fish eggs on the East Coast, pack them in saturated sawdust, put them on rail cars, and ship them across the Transcontinental Railroad to California and raise them here in a little hatchery he had on Kelsey Creek and turn them loose on the lake. Fortunately, a lot of the stuff like pike didn't, didn't succeed. I mean, he, thought, he just put everything in here because all those other native fish, they were just junk. We got to get real fish in there. Or murica. We got real fish. <coughs> so, catfish, bass, bluegills, crappie, all these sunfish, all, all, these, all these fish were physically put into Clear Lake over this time. Um, we did, I did a uh, bibliography with a couple of colleagues of mine, and we've assembled over 300 references talking about just the fish in Clear Lake. There's a tremendous uh, history, bibliography, of, and great stories. Wonderful. The best story was in 1877, because there was too many carp in Clear Lake, or 1880, somewhere in there, the California Fish Commission wanted to import California sea lions and dump them into Clear Lake. The reason they wanted to do that, because they did that in Lake Merced, in San, in San Francisco. The problem, when, and there, when the sea, and they, this is in print, when the sea lions ran out of carp in, in Lake Merced, well, they just went over the dunes and went back in the ocean. 
The reason, the reason that they nixed the idea here, can you imagine if they brought California sea lions? The reason they nixed it here, they thought, oh, there's too many tulies. The, the sea lions won't be able to get all the carp anyway. Okay, that's a good reason. You know, you have a little arcade out there feeding sea lions. Crazy stuff was thought of about Clear Lake over the years. You probably heard about the hitch, recently listed as threatened by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, just, again, a minnow, a fairly large minnow, uh, very important uh, source of, of food for Native Americans over those 8,000 years, as many of these, because these guys, you know, they run up the, they run up the creeks, right, to, to spawn, so you could go catch them with your hands. Uh, we, we don't know if they come to their natal streams. We don't know much about their movements in the lake. Peter Moyla Davis talked really extensively about, you know, they'll come up, they'll lay their eggs, eggs hatch in seven to ten days, and about another week the little baby fish start moving down the, uh, down the creeks and get out in the tule beds. So in a year like this, where, you know, the creeks are still flowing, this is a good year for hitch, right? They're not getting, they're not getting trapped, there's plenty of water, and they're able to move on and, and survive. So we would hope that we'd get an uptick in, uh, in fish numbers. For, for hitch. I just put this in here because people ask me, so, well, when you're in the creek and you see all those baby fish, can you tell them apart? I said, they're two eyes and a wiggle. I can't tell them apart. And they all look the same. And at this stage, they're nothing more but fish food. So when we talk about zooplankton, you know, and filter feeding fish and how they swim through the water, and they're just eating themselves. They don't know what they're eating. Two eyes and a wiggle. What drives the lake is energy, not food. A lot of people say, well, how come the grebes aren't, aren't uh, breeding this year? Well, and you, you know, I mean, the moms in the audience know, it takes a lot of energy to bear a child, to raise a child, to feed a child. Well, it's the same thing with, with birds. So you imagine a grebe, if it's going down, and say it, it dives on an average of five times to get a fish, well, okay, if it, if it get a fish every five dives because it's expending all its energy and it gets a, a little minnow of some kind, you know, it's like, okay, maybe it's getting enough food to sustain itself, but it's not getting extra energy for, for courtship, for egg development, for egg laying, for egg incubation, for chick rearing, for chick feeding, right? Lots of energy. So even though when they go down and they catch a fish, they might, you know, might catch a fish that's equivalent to the size of a French fry, what they need, and like we've had the past couple years when threadfin shad are exploding in the lake, sure, they might still be diving every five times to get a fish, but rather than getting a french fry, they're catching a cheeseburger. They're putting fat on. They're getting extra energy. And that's when we see these big, you know, th these big uh, nesting periods when there's, when there's extra energy out there. So it's just how energy moves through the system. Kathy's always telling me, keep it simple. All right, here's a simple, my wife. This is a simple representation of a food web on Clear Lake. How'd I do, dear? The reason this is simple, this came out of a PhD dissertation at UC Davis. Colin, uh, Colin Eagle Smith did this. What he's showing here in this simple rep, uh, reflection, he's showing how mercury moves through the food web. So he's simply looking at one element and how it moves through the food web. So, you know, to say, I mean, yeah, it's... Obviously, I'm trying to make a point here and say, even though this is simple because it's only one thing, you know, it probably took them two years to work all this out and to figure out how, all, how this system, uh, or how this element moves through the system. So, but it just reminds me to remind you that, you know, we have these, these concurrent interactions, these synergisms that are working together as, as um, elements and, and 
uh, nutrients are moving through the system up to eventually us. And, you know, and everybody says, oh, it's the, it's the bass that eat all the hitch, or it's this or that. It's, you know, it, very few things in nature are linear. There's lots of things that eat fish. Lots of things that eat different fish. Lots of things that only eat certain fish. So again, you know, it, it's, it's easy to want to simplify things to try and understand it, but you have to recognize that you, you, may, be, you may be restricting your focus on a particular loci of activity, but it's one one approach to a much larger complex system. And, and what, we've seen, what we've seen real problems with is not so much with predation, but with competition as inland silversides and threadfin shad and all those introduced species have redistributed energy cycles in the lake. So there's a lot more mouths to feed, if you will. And so that's affected fish like the thick-tailed chub and the, and the split tail that are now extirpated. Those are stressors in addition to other stressors that they face, eventually they just blinked out. But it's competition, so you, know, you don't want to just keep introducing fish because it's more, or any organism, any invasive species, because it's another stress factor on an already stressed environment. These little silver sides were introduced illegally. You could read the numbers yourself, but when they, when they peak, when they peak in the, sometimes in the lake, you can stay in one spot, as this study did, this, this particular researcher counted 400 to 800,000 per hour passing his boat. They're literally clouds. And they're little, they're micro feeders, they're filter feeders, and there's, you know, 400,000 to 800,000 mouths to feed. Even though they're small, collectively, and Jamie and her staff, when the shad have, have increased or these have increased, they've actually been able to monitor a decrease in phytoplankton and zooplankton. These guys are vacuum cleaners going through there, eating all, of the, eating all the food sources on the bottom end of the food chain, thereby putting stress on all the other organisms. That's why we worry about invasive species being um, indiscriminately put into places. This is an interesting, this was thick-tailed chub back in uh, the turn of the century, last century, was one of the most common market fish in San Francisco, and now it's extinct because of introduction of exotic species, overfishing, uh, water diversion, and the like. So it, even though, even though it may have been very, very common at once, these organisms can only take so much stress and eventually they, they just blink out. So the take home message for my, my talk about the ecology of Clear Lake is you know, recognize that Clear Lake is a sum of a bunch of different parts. It's, it's a lot of different elements, a lot of different parts working together for pushing, re, pushing reactions in one direction or another. So again, it's, it's, It'd be nice if it was clean and linear. Sometimes it is, like light and plant growth. That's pretty linear. But again, the, the variable is, last summer it, was real, it wasn't cloudy, it was smoky. So the amount of light hitting the water was different. Uh, if, we have, if we have fine suspended sediments in the water, that's going to affect how far light penetrates. All of these variables come into play when we're trying to understand uh, how Clear Lake works. You doing okay? I got just a few more slides to cover on economics. What was the purpose of all that fish introduction back in the day? Was it economics? Was it seriously? Just they, because they, we wanted to have more fish. Yeah, no, seriously. The question is, you know, what was what was the reason for bringing all those fish there? The decision makers at the time felt that California's native species were trash fish. There were there, they they could improve it. Literally, that's the word they used in the literature. They were going to improve 
the fisheries for economic and recreational value in California. They wanted fish that they knew. And that's, that's almost verbatim out of Cardone and Dill. They had salmon. How much better does it get than that, right? Exactly, but it was just a mindset of we can make it better. We can, we can control nature and, and, and give us what we know. It's, it was a different era, right? It's just how people thought back then. Not, I'm not trying to pass judgment, but it's just the reality of, of society's views of, of the day. So anyway, two years ago I ran, I, I, people have always asked me, county CEOs and others have asked me, what's the value of fishing in Clear Lake? I thought, that's a good question. So before I retired, I tackled this, and I just want to share with you some, some numbers. I think, and, I, and again, there's some, there's some opportunities here. There's some business opportunities that I'll get on that soapbox at the end, uh, but particularly for agriculture and particularly for the people in this room. So California, on average, spend about $55 million a year in fishing licenses. If you look at people that own a fishing license within about a two-hour drive of Lake County, we've got about 150,000 people that on any given day can come and hop in their car and drive to Lake County and fish. It's a pretty good number, right? Again, this was just arbitrary, but I thought, well, okay, I'm just thinking about day trippers. Okay, these are, these are people that just show up, and it runs pretty average. So about 150,000 folks. Obviously, people come from a lot farther. I'll get into that later. You know, what, we know what attracts people to Clear Lake who want to fish. It's an average bass weight that is not rivaled in any other western lake in the United States. When the crappie bite is on, it's off the hook, pardon the pun. Talked to a guy, he came from Fresno. He drove up from Fresno to catch crappie. I said, dude, you're kidding me. He goes, no, man, where else am I going to catch fish like this? Drove nine hours. I, I just said, okay. Um, you know, and just the ability to catch fish. This is a bluegill, world-class bluegill. The ability to catch fish in such a different environment. And then, you know, again, catfish. We just had a new lake record. That spread like wildfire through the Internet. People come from the Bay Area to fish for catfish, and bow hunting is very popular on Clear Lake for carp. So, what do we know about angling? Well, we know that there's competitive angling for different species. We know that when the FLW guys were here two weeks ago, yeah, the tournament was Friday, Saturday. They showed up the Saturday before. We know they were here for a week, pre-fishing, uh, fi finding out what the bass, where the fish are, what, what they're using. Crappie, crappie tournaments have become very popular in the last year. Why? Because my buddy that won the crappie tournament this year, 10 fish, it took 23 pounds. That's a 2.3-pound average for crappie. There's, there's no place in the United States you can get an average of 2.3-pound crappie other than Clear Lake. <clears throat> so we have, you know, obviously recreational fishing, competitive bow fishing for carp, uh, guided trips. There's about 13, I, I looked it up, it's been probably a year or so, 13 people have uh, guide licenses on Clear Lake. They're not all real active, probably a half a dozen of them are very active. Uh, you fish from a boat, fish from a shore. You kind of fish from a pier if you break the law. We don't have any public fishing piers most places around the lake, and so you see all the kids fishing on boat docks, which we, we need to think about that. We need to give kids a safe place to fish where they're not standing around trucks and boats backing in and out of boat docks. Just a thought. We know from, from data that's collected for these tournaments how many people are here, how many contest days are here. Um, we know how many fish are caught. We know how many total hours of effort 
are, and this is just tournament fishermen, just the day of the tournament. This isn't pre-fishing. I think those are pretty impressive numbers, personally. We know the average number of uncontest con days. It's like, well, wait, May doesn't have 39 days in it. How can you have 39 tournaments? Well, you have four or five tournaments on a weekend. Poor guy, Mark Miller, that works for the county. Poor guy, two weeks ago, he's pulling his hair out. He had five tournaments on one day. He had the college championship, the high school championship, the FLW, and two, two, low, or two out of, out of town uh, club, club um, tournaments. We had, there was like 1,300 boats on the lake in five days. You have to understand about Clear Lake. If you're a serious bass angler, this is a bucket list destination. People travel from all over the United States to fish Clear Lake. It's that good. The other thing you see here is, you know, one of these guys showing up. Well, hell, they're not here in July and August. The lake stinks. It's hot. They're here in the shoulder months. They're out here. They're here during the spawn when the fish are, are somewhat predictable. Okay, they're showing up in March, April, and May. They hang around a little bit in June. These are mostly small little local club tournaments, Santa Rosa, San Jose, places like that. Again, you know, on average, the number of competitors uh, per month over that, that period of time. Again, it's these months here that are, that's when people are showing up to fish Clear Lake. It's affected by the, the global economy. 2008, a lot of these guys that fished this tournament are in the contract trades. 2008, they took a hit, you know. Their wives are saying, yeah, it's a nice $60,000 boat you got, but I got a house payment to make. Make a choice. Boat's got to go. So they took a hit. They're coming back a little bit. Um, but again, the, you know, most, most of these tournament anglers are they're weekend warriors. Some of them are pro, but, but they have other obligations with their money. We know that Clear Lake is an open lake. It's very easy to get on this lake. There are 700 points of entrance on this lake, counting all the private boat docks. The public do boat docks, they're open. You want to go out there right now? Go. Fifth Street, Third Street, Kelsey, uh, Kelsey Park, Kelseyville Park, the, the Oaks. The only monitored ramp is Clear Lake State Park and then any of the private, private resorts that may have. But we don't really have a good handle on how many people on any given day are launching a boat. We don't have any handle on number of people on a given day launching a boat on Clear Lake. Uh, Fishing Game used to go around and, and you know, talk to people and take regular creel censuses. They don't do the poor Fishing Game biologist, great guy, but he's got 17 counties he's responsible for. So obviously he's stretched a little thin. So you know, assessing non-tournament angling is a real challenge. We just don't know. Locals, people coming up here, going out and fishing, they just show up. And we have no record of that. What, the best record we have is from the county's quagga, muscle, and interception and inspection program. And again, what this data tells me is when are out-of-county residents coming to Clear Lake? Are they coming in August? No. If you want to go boating with your family and you live in Sacramento, are you going to drive to Clear Lake to go boating? Probably not. Our lake can be challenging. Not when you got Folsom and Comanche and Berryessa that are reservoirs and that are spotless, if you will. You, you, can, go, you can go waterboarding or skate, you know, um, water skiing in relatively clean water. When are people from out of town coming? They're coming in the shoulder months. They're coming after the summer, summer heat and summertime. They're coming in March, April, May, and June. Not in the 4th of July. 
and not Memorial Day weekend. They're coming early. Um, they're coming during the spawn. Uh, they're coming, as I said, they're coming in those shoulder months when we're not really thinking about uh, promoting tourism. Uh, and again, as I said, because of the challenges at Clear Lake, non-angling boaters have lots and lots of choices in the summer of water that is not so challenging. And what's changed in the last five years, ten years? The internet. When the, when the crappie bite is on Clear Lake, within a week, there's a thousand people fishing the shores of this lake. People are on phones, they're on forums, they're on YouTube. Believe me, look it up. Look that up on YouTube. Crappie fishing, the heat is on. I mean, it's, it's literally like wildfire, how, much, how fast the information gets out as people are sharing information, sharing pictures, and telling their buddies, come on up, because it is on. <clears throat> and someone like me, who's a fishing geek, you know, I tend to track these kind of things. You don't have to look far. Um, it's not hard to find people telling people to come to Clear Lake. Wayne Brazil, excellent angler. He's a local guy. I don't know how many boats he's won in tournaments. And, you know, I mean, just people share their excitement of fishing Clear Lake. And where's my book? Bassmaster Magazine, is, let's see, I think it was this February issue, rated Clear Lake the number one bass fishing destination in the nine western United States, third overall in the country. So, what did I try and figure out to do? I said, well, okay, I've got these numbers. What does it mean? How much money are people spending? Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service estimates that people spend $58.16 a day fishing. I just spent 12 days up in eastern Shasta County with Kathy, my wife, and we were camping. She would have been thrilled if I spent $58.16 a day. By the time I go to Safeway, by the time I went to Napa, by the time I had to buy a boat for my part, by the time I just needed that new doodad, Lure, I just needed it. I had 55 of them in my tackle box, but I needed that new one. So when you start looking at the numbers of out of um, non-resident angler boats inspected, and you figure on average about two anglers per boat, you know, you can get some numbers. And if you figure out, again, I mean, this isn't conservative. This is stupid. That's how conservative this number is. But if you figure out that they're spending $58.16 a day for the month of April in these years, you come up with a roughly very, and that's if they're here for one day, right? Remember I said some of these guys show up for a week. You come up with a number of about $137,000 in a month that's being recycled in our local economy. So let's look at it over the course of a year. Same kind of deal, using that same ridiculous number. This is in thousands down here by month. Again, you can see, you know, it's these months here when people are coming, spending a lot of money. If you add all this up, one day, because that's all I can tell you, because they get their sticker. All I know is they're here for one day. They might be here two days. They might be here two weeks. But just to be as conservative and as honest as I can be, and as dumb as these numbers really are, I come up with over $880,000 being spent over the course of a year. If we, look at, if we look at local people, so we got 8,500 residents have a, a license. People like me that are out of control when it comes to spending money on fishing. Again, if estimated, this is for these anglers. If they spent this money 
$58 a year on one day, that's all, half a, million, half a million dollars, you add that up, without even trying, I come up with over a million dollars in local revenues just in angling-related uh, expenses. What do we need to think about? This is, this, is, this is the conversation I wanted to start tonight, as I told Terry. You know, we don't have good numbers on, on who's coming in and who's leaving. That may change, that may not, but this is the reality of what we're dealing with. Right now, the only, the only handle we have on people visiting are those that have to go through the county's inspection program. And, and the, the improvements that have been made to that, that program are, are fabulous. I mean, the people at the docks, they've hired really good people. I mean, these guys that are, these volunteers that are working at the docks, they've never met a stranger. You know, they're just the perfect people to, to interact with, with the public coming to Lake County. Um, Again, resident use of, of Clear Lake, we have no idea. You don't know how many times I'm on the lake a year. Kathy knows I'm on the lake 70, 75 times a year. But, you know, that's just, that's, you don't know that. Um, again, existing surveys using ridiculously no uh, multipliers suggest that significant financial resources are being uh, generated locally to support fishing. Um, as again, I have no problem telling people I think fishing generates at least a million dollars a year in activity. And I think what we need to do is we need to address the, the, the needs of visiting anglers and assist Lake County governments and businesses better incorporate and connect to these, to these outside anglers. In closing, let me give you some ideas. Every March, the Chamber of Commerce um, has a, a big fishing tournament. It's a sponsored fishing tournament. You get about 150 boats, people coming, mostly just from California. Uh, I saw a couple boats this year from Tennessee. One was from uh, Oregon. I think the guy who won was from Oregon. So my question is, why, and I've been asking this question, how come we have a Chamber of Commerce tournament, how come when people come to Lake County, we don't have a banner across downtown Main Street in Kelseyville, Clear Lake, Lakeport that says, welcome anglers, welcome fishermen. Why don't we have shop signs and business signs that say, anglers welcome, fishermen welcome? How come restaurants aren't offering, you know, come in and get a free glass of wine with your entree, get a free dessert with your entree, fishermen dinner specials? Why aren't the breweries saying, come in, we'll give you a free beer, show us your fishing license? Why, and the reason I say this, as I told you, I just spent 12 days up in Bernie. I can't turn around up there without somebody acknowledging the fact that I'm there spending money. That's all I'm suggesting. We don't even acknowledge that they're coming. All I think we need to think about is how do we say thank you? How do we do promotions? Um, why, Tiffany Harz, who worked for me for a couple of years, did her MBA at um, um, Marymount College before they snuck out under the dead of night. Uh, oh, did I say that? I'm sorry. <laughs> I was on their advisory board, and they snuck out, and I didn't even know it. But she did it, you know, she, she wrote out some numbers and saying, a coupon book of all different businesses that could be handed out at the tackle stores or could be given to 
could be given to tournament directors. So when people show up or come in to a tackle shop, they can get a coupon book that says, hey, come by, we'll give you a free beer, or you need your tires rotated, come by, and, you know, or we'll do a free uh, check engine light survey for you, or anything, just different ways to incorporate different businesses and connect them with these folks that are coming outside. She did an analysis for about $5,000. You can print up a lot of coupon books and spread them around the county and connect businesses. Because again, these folks are coming from out of town. Maybe they don't know where to go get a particular service or a product. A coupon book might be an idea of, of connecting them. Um, the other thing, too, on the chamber tournament, I, I get concerned because it's like that would be a perfect opportunity for the Lake County Wine Commission to work with the Chamber of Commerce and to work with the casino, because it's always held out of the casino, and have a spouse tour while the guys are out fishing. Pick up spouses at 10 o'clock, do some wine tasting, have a lunch, bring them back to the casino by 3 o'clock on a bunch so they can see the guys way in. You know, I've had, I can't tell you how many people would say, you know, well, my wife would come if there was something for her to do. It, may, it, may, it just seems like that's a natural connection there that maybe we should think about. The other one is, so that particular, and, and I'm focusing on the, on the chamber tournament because, you know, you've got to start with one, and I've got a group of smart, talented people here. I know if we start with one, things will grow. But every day on the tournament, you know, the big fish wins a check. So if you come in with an eight-pound fish and you catch the biggest fish of the day, you get a check for 800 bucks. Well, couldn't the second, second big fish of the day get a case of Lake County wines? Couldn't the third place fish of the day get a basket of Lake County agricultural products, a bottle of wine, a couple of bottles of suds, maybe some dried pears, some walnuts, some honey? Again, I think there's ways to make this, particularly with agriculture, I think there's a way to make some connections and uh, to, to recognize that I think you have something to offer these, these visitors. One, they don't know where to go. And through promotions and coupon books and, and signage, I think you can help direct them towards businesses. And then you can engage them with, with your products, whether it's wine or beer or produce. Uh, I think those are all things that could, could work. And I think the chamber, I've been on this soapbox for a couple of years because it just, to me, seemed, pardon the pun, seems like low-hanging fruit. seems like something we should be thinking about. You know, I, the casino, these guys are here for a week Spending $58.16 a day. Yeah, right. They spend that in Bud Light in the first hour, right? <laughs> you know, the casino could, and I'm, I'm kind of putting the casino on the spot here, but they could offer a, a taco feed that, that first night of the, uh, they could sponsor a taco feed or go out and find a sponsor for a taco feed or a spaghetti feed. It doesn't cost a lot of money. But I think there's ways to incorporate a larger portion of the community uh, involved with, with the anglers and, and the visitors that we have in those months when, when I know businesses are struggling in those shoulder months when they're trying to figure out how to attract business. That's all I got. Thank you so much for your patience and your time. I'm done. So that's it from Greg Giusti, who is the Emeritus Advisor to the U.S. Cooperative Extension. To learn more about our sponsors, check out the Lake County California Women for Agriculture website, or the website of the Lake County Wine Grape Commission. Links can be found in the show notes. I'm Bill Grudy for The Vine Line, and we'll see you next time for another deep dive into the science, technology, and economics of another issue of importance to agriculture.